as we start a new book this morning. We're going to start the book of 2 John. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on. Father, we thank you so very much for your word. We thank you so very much for everything that you've given us, that everything you've provided for us in your son Jesus. We just ask that as we study this book and as we look into your word, that the things that are found here would, uh, would resonate, that the things that, would be, uh, that we would glean from this would be things that would help us live for your son, to be steadfast, to, to continue to keep and on in this world. We just thank you so very much for your sovereign love for us. We thank you that you have secured us and that your promises that you've given us and the blessings that you've given us are anchored in your character and in your will. And help us realize this as we go through this book. We just thank you so very much for everything you've given us. In your son's name, amen. Now, I know this is probably a complete understatement, but we all understand that the world around us is a very confused world right now. Very interesting world. Very interesting internationally, inter interesting right here at home. There's a lot of things going on, right? A lot of challenges that we have, a lot of challenges that uh, we have to navigate, and I guarantee you that many of us go, I never had to think about this when I was a kid, but now I have to deal with stuff and figure out stuff that I've never even had to think about, and how do I help kids and grandkids and the people around me? Just for uh, a little bit of perspective, I remember when I was a kid, I remember older believers used to say that when I was a kid, uh, the stuff we're dealing with now, I've never had to deal with, and I'm sure that the elder believers who were there when they were kids said the same thing. In fact, I'm probably going to go out on a limb here. My kids, when they grow up, they'll talk to their kids and say, there's stuff I would have never guessed was around and now it's here, and probably even my grandkids if the Lord tarries, right? A little bit of perspective. Now, I don't want to minimize what's going on in the world. The world around us is crazy. It's hard. It's a hard thing to navigate. How do we navigate that? How do parents navigate not only for themselves the world around us, but then how do we help our children? And how do we as a church help each other navigate these things? How does grandparents help interject the book of 2 John? This is an interesting book. This book is a really interesting book about this issue of how do we navigate the world. The book of 2 John is a letter from the Apostle John to a lady. Not only is it a lady, it's a lady with children. And as we're going to go through the book, we're going to find a couple things out about this lady as she's living in this world. Number one, we're going to find out in verse 4 that some of her children are walking in the truth. Anybody ever experienced that? Some of the people you know, uh, some of your children, some of your grandchildren, some of the people, the families that you know, only some of the kids are walking with the Lord? How do you navigate that? And then we're going to find out later on in verse, in verse 8, verse 7. Man, it seems like she's surrounded by false teachers. And not just, not just dumb false teachers, right? Not those things that when they talk you go, obviously, that is not true. We're talking about intelligent, sophisticated, well-reasoned heretics. How do you have a fighting chance against that? 
John gives this lady and this family some advice. As we go through the book of 2 John, we're going to, we're going to see four things uh, as we're going to spend a couple weeks in this book. The advice, the advice that the elder gives to this lady, to a young family in a world that sounds very much like our own right now. The first is going to be, we have well-anchored love. That's the first piece of advice. Realize that we have well-anchored love. That's what we're going to talk about today, this well-anchored love. Guess what other advice he gives? Later on, next week, we're going to talk about in verse 4 and following, to walk in truth. What's the advice that, that we can give to young people? And what's the advice for us as we navigate this world, as we help? Remember, you're anchored in love. Remember to continue to walk in the truth. Then in a couple weeks, we're going to go over this next one, which is to watch out for deceivers. Watch out. Not that you go out and looking for them, but watch out. And he's going to give uh, a, a test that, that we can apply right now and, and says, well, how can we watch out for false teachers? I'm going, to, I'm going to let out the cat of the bag. It's how they talk about Jesus. That's it. That's, it's not a hard test. What do they say about Jesus? If they deny one of the major tenets, then guess what? False teacher, stay away. And then lastly, we're going to see of this continued desire, this want for Christian fellowship. That's the advice. It's not hard. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, really complicated. In fact, it's actually really simple advice, right? Realize what you have in Jesus. Walk in the truth. Watch out for those that want to rob you of it. And stay close to those who love Jesus. That's really simple and profound advice. So we're going to walk through each of these. This morning we're going to look at this well-anchored love. So, in this text this morning, in well-anchored love, we're going to look at the first three verses. The first two verses, we're going to deal with how love is anchored in the truth. Our love that we have is anchored in the truth. I don't want to preach before we get a chance to preach, but I want to say this. It is, our love is not anchored in each other. It's anchored in the truth. And because we love the truth, we love each other. That's where the anchor is, is in Christ and in the truth. We will let each other down. The truth is unmovable, unshakable. Therefore, it will not let us down. And then second, we're going to look in verse 3 about how these blessings that we receive are anchored in God. They're not based upon your performance or your ability to love or your ability to see truth. They are yours and they are given to you and they are anchored in God. That's what we're going to talk about. And so, in this crazy world, where do we look? Well, we are anchored in the firmest concrete. We are not moving in the midst of this storm. And we need to remember these important things. So let's first look at 2 John verse 1. Notice what John says. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also who love the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and in love. So notice in verse 1, 
John starts off this phrase, the elder, really interesting. This, by the way, this isn't the only time that an apostle refers to themselves as an elder. The apostle Peter does the same thing in his epistle. He calls himself the elder. Interesting that this is how the apostle decides to introduce himself. Uh, I'm often amazed at how the authors of the New Testament introduce themselves. Uh, guarantee you this, uh, I know how arrogant and narcissistic I am. If I was an apostle, I would tell everybody. I would let you know, guess what? I'm an apostle. You know how awesome I am? I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. You want to know why? Uh, this guy is an apostle. I'm like a penny, one cent, an apostle, right? That's what I would do. I would come up with all sorts of puns. You already know. Notice the humility here, the elder. Now, there is a little bit of debate of whether John wrote the book, and I don't really want to get us lost in the weeds here of talking about it, but it is important to remember that, number one, a lot of the evidence of the, the writing seems very close to 1 John. The language sounds very close to 3 John. Sounds very close to the Gospel of John. Sounds very close to the writing style of the book of Revelation. Now, we know that in the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation, that is the Apostle John who's writing. We know that. And so we can surmise, based upon all of that, just linguistically, yeah, John wrote this. Not only that, but church history, for whatever it's worth, is almost unanimous in this. It's almost unanimous that John wrote this letter. In fact, it's kind of interesting how they talk about this letter, and it's really important for us to remember this, that John is most likely writing this book He's writing this book as the pastor of the city of Ephesus, okay? So the city of Ephesus has quite a bit of theological power. Paul was there, Apollos was there, Timothy was there. Now we know the apostle John was there. And most likely, the heretic that John is writing about in this letter, in the letter of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, is one by the name of Serenthus. We're going to learn lots about Serenthus. I don't. Once again, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. But essentially, Serenthus has this crazy, weird view about the person of Jesus. He diminishes the humanity of Jesus. Almost kind of saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. He was like a phantom. Some serious stuff. Some serious stuff. Really smart guy, by the way. So John is most likely writing in response to this. Just one other thing here before we move on. Notice that he calls himself an elder. Why is that significant? Well, as we know, elders are the leaders of the church. They are the shepherds. So here the apostle John is saying, even though I'm, a, even though I'm an apostle, I am your pastor first. I, I, I am the one that's looking out for your soul. So this advice is not just an apostolic advice. This is a pastoral advice. This is a pastor's advice to watch out for your soul. How, how can I help you watch for your soul? That's the idea here. And so here he's speaking as the, the churchman, the, the one who's, who's over her, the, the one who's a pastor. By the way, the way it's written, it assumes they know who's writing and they know who's receiving the letter, obviously. John doesn't have to say everybody's name for us to think of this as a personal letter. Now, notice who he writes to. He writes to the elect lady. 
Now, once again, I know that there's a lot of debate, and at one time, I believed another view about this word, elect lady. At one time, I used to think that the elect lady represented a local church. I have now seen the light and repented of my sins. Uh, one of the things that's really important when we come to these issues that are debated, it's we have to go through the regular rules of interpretation. Regardless of how good something might sound, the right meaning of the text is far more important than anything else. And so, based off of that, when I look at this and I look at some of the rules of interpretation, specifically following metaphors and figurative speech, which if the elect lady is a church... I have to try to follow that rule, and it has to be, it has to fit that rule if it's going to be figurative. And what's the figurative rule? Well, it's simply this. Number one, if you can read it and it makes logical sense, literally, then it can't be figurative. Well, yeah, no. I could see somebody writing a letter to someone else. Yep. Okay. And then number two, every time it's figurative, guess what? There's something in the text that says figurative. It is so obviously figurative. We can't think of God as writing and saying, I'm going I'm to write something that's really figurative, and only the smart people are going to be able to figure it out. We've got to remember, this is written for average people, and God is not a God of confusion, okay? And so based off of that, that's really one of the major reasons that I think he's writing to an individual opposed to a church. Now, you could believe that he's writing to a church, and that's okay. And when we get to heaven and we meet John, I'm going to point him out to you. I'm going to say, can you believe how wrong they were and how right we were? I'm joking. It'll probably be the other way around. You'll probably come up and go, Pastor, remember that one time you made that joke about meeting John in heaven? Guess what? We were right and you were wrong. Okay, fair enough. But I think he's writing to a lady. What's interesting is how he describes this lady. Notice he calls her to the elect lady. Wow, what a, what a deep statement here. Election, the idea that God sovereignly before the foundations of the world secured the salvation of people and sovereignly worked in their life and called them. This is speaking of not just their salvation, but also their sanctification, their ministry. What's mama's ministry in this book? Her ministry is to her children. Amen. That, what a high calling that is here. This isn't just some passing lady. No, every believer is called. Every believer has a ministry. I, I just want to point this out even further. Go with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, just, just so we, we all have this in our minds. Ephesians chapter 2, we're familiar with this text. I reference this text quite often because it's one of the clearer texts on the depravity of man, on the salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, right? That Jesus came down and died on the cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And the person that places their personal trust... In the person and work of Jesus, he is who he says he is, he did what he said, and I'm trusting him alone to be right with God, right? That faith saves us, and we, 
And, and that grace saves us, not on the basis of merit, right? So just go with me to verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not out of your own doing. This isn't something you did. This is on the basis of faith. You believed. Now you're saved. That's it. This was a gift given to you. You didn't earn it. There's nothing you could have done to earn it. And he says it's the gift of God. Verse 9, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. So the apostle Paul, as he's talking to the same church that likely John is at, reminding them not to be arrogant in assuming that God saved me because I'm great and I'm awesome, but that everything that God does, he does for his own glory, and even the salvation of our own souls is meant to bring honor and glory to God, right? I am saved by faith for the sole purpose that I can't say, look at what I did. God, can you please give me a gold star on my jacket. No, it's not off of that. It's based off of him. And then notice what he says, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. We're his. Created in Christ Jesus, notice this, for good works. Each believer, you are created by God, uniquely called, uniquely made a brand new creature for the purpose of going out and doing the things that God asks And then notice what it says, which God prepared beforehand. Before what? Before you placed your faith in Jesus, that you may walk in them. So notice that this election, this calling, is much more than just salvation. It's dealing with our lives, our calling, our ministry, how we act, and our obedience. This morning, Greg in Sunday school made a comment, and I think it's really important for us to remember. We often think of the ministry as doing what I'm doing now. This is the ministry. Or we go somewhere where they don't speak English and I learn that other language and I tell people about Jesus there. That's the ministry. Or we think about what Chuck does as he leads the music. That's ministry. Everything else is non-ministry. That is crazy. It's insane. It's not biblical. Every believer who is obedient has a ministry. You are called to something. Now, it looks different in each person's life. But we're all called to be obedient. And as we serve the Lord and serve each other, that's ministry. You don't need a graven invitation. You just look around and go, how can I serve someone? That's ministry. What does that look like? Does that mean that you mow somebody's grass? Sure. You talk to somebody? Sure. You pray for them? Sure. Yeah, that's ministry, right? And each situation's different. It looks different in each of our lives. But all of our life is meant to serve the Lord. And so think of this lady in 2 John. This this phrase, the elect to the elect lady, assumes that this lady has a vibrant ministry. What's that ministry? Notice, and her children. This is a letter written from an apostle to a mother who's struggling with her children and the culture around her. God cares about this too. He cares about this type of stuff as well to this elect lady and her children. And then notice what he says, and here's really important. Whom I love in truth. I love in truth. Oh, what a a genuine expression of love. What a genuine expression of, of, of how believers are to love one another. And notice he says, whom I love, he loves her based off of what? Based off of the truth. The truth of what? 
the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the word. So as he looks at her, he looks at her in the sphere of the truth. And because she's in the truth, he loves her. He loves her specifically because of the truth. That's the foundation of the love that believers are to have for one another. You want to talk about unity in the church? The basis for our unity in the church has to be rooted and anchored in the truth of the word and of Jesus Christ. If it's not, then what are we doing here? This is the worst country club ever. Right? It has to be in the truth. If it's not, then what are we doing? There's people here who aren't Penn State football fans. What are we doing here? It has to be this. When we're dealing with each other and we rub each other a little wrong, why do we stay unified? Why do we fight to stay unified? Is it just because we happen to vote the same way? Probably not. Is it happen that we just live in the same area? Well, that's a weird reason to get together with people. It has to be on something real, substantial, bigger than ourselves. So big, so strong, so immovable that no matter what happens, it cannot shake that bond of love. And it is something that is the truth of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. That's our bond. You could join all other kinds of clubs. Great. Amen. Great. I don't know. I've joined clubs. I don't fight for unity in those clubs because it doesn't matter. They're superficial. This is not a superficial connection that we have. We are united in Christ and in the truth of the word. That's why we love each other. It's anchored in this. Now, imagine for a moment the world around us right now. It's confusing, chaotic. What's the truth here? What's the truth there? Everybody says it's my truth, your truth. As believers, we go, that doesn't matter. We have Jesus. And as we navigate through the world, isn't there some sort of comfort and encouragement that comes from the fact that I have, that I'm attached to this unmovable truth that doesn't change with culture and time and is true and that I have a love of brothers and sisters who are also anchored to that same truth? Now, one of the other things that I think is really important is notice what he says next. He says, not only I, not only I as the elder, but, but also those, all those who know the truth. So, so those who know the truth, by the way, this word for know has this idea of that they knew before, and that knowing before continues into knowing now. So they are really intimate with the truth. They know the truth of the gospel. They know the truth of the word. And so here's all these believers who know the truth. They're really know the truth. It's not intellectual merely. It is, it is everything to them. I know it. I'm intimate with it. it. I welcome it into my life. It forms the way I think, the way I react. It is, it is the stability. These are the people who know the truth. So these people who know the truth also love this lady and her family, and they love her in the same way that the apostle does in the truth. Now, why? Why is that so important? Because notice verse 2. Because of the truth, 
because of the truth of Jesus, that Jesus is fully God, fully man, those two natures do not mixed or diminished, the truth that Jesus is the only Savior, the only mediator between God and man, and the truth that's found in the Word, because of the truth, notice, that abides in us. It abides in us. See, it's much more than just knowing. It's letting it come in, welcoming it. The question is, how does it get implanted in us? How does the truth get implanted? Well, it's, it's actually kind of simple and yet profound. Jesus often refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. So when, the spirit, when we place our faith in Jesus, guess what happens? We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, always and forever. And because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth, guess what he does in the inside of us? Teaches us the truth. He allows us to see the truth, leads us to the truth. In fact, notice how profound this is. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. First Corinthians chapter 12. Let's start in verse 1. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad he wrote this, right? He says in verse 2, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. You see that? You were led. You were led. There was something pulling you. There was a pull. There's a pull to this stuff. You were led. He says, therefore, I want, to, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God will ever say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Oh, you see this. Well, here the Holy Spirit enables the believer to claim Jesus as Savior and recognize him as Lord. That's a truth that the Holy Spirit enables for the believer. You don't have the Holy Spirit. Guess what? You really can't do that. That's the work of the Spirit. Think about this truth, that this is what the Holy Spirit does inside of us. It implants us. It allows us to say this. This truth is there. It's always present. Be honest with you. I, I can't think of a situation in the past couple weeks where the first thing I thought of was, well, how is first the gospel? Jesus Christ has died on the cross for my sins. Situation arises God's in control. Jesus is Lord. He's God. This truth of the deity of Jesus and the security I have because of the gospel is, is there, right? And it's, it's inside. It's inseparable from how I think. And as a believer, no matter how immature or mature, I think all of us have this. That's what the scriptures say, right? We all kind of have this. Jesus, the gospel. It's what it says, right? The truth that abides in us. Notice what else, what else it says. And will be with us forever. Wow. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful gift that he changes our hearts and our minds. Allows us to see the truth. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I don't think that the moment you place your faith in Christ, you get the Holy Spirit, you get a download of all of the Bible, and now you know all truth. No, doesn't also mean that you can't grow in your understanding of truth or your understanding of the gospel. Of course, that's not what I mean. What I do mean, however, is this. 
is that because of the Holy Spirit, who's a strong man, who makes me a new creature in Christ, there will always be this sense of Jesus is God, the gospel is the truth, and the truth is found in God's word. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments where you go, ah, I wonder. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, though, is that there's, a, there's this moment, this bedrock thing that's inside of you that's always there, that always speaks to this truth. I also believe, too, friends, that when you are not walking by the power of the Spirit and you allow sin in your life, you can lack this assurance of the truth of this. And when you sin and you're given fully to the flesh, is it possible for you to even doubt some of these truths? Of course, that's what the flesh does. But know this. This lady who's having, she has kids. Some of her kids are walking in the truth. Some of them are not. There's false teachers around. What, what, what would encourage her? You are tethered to a strong truth. You are tethered to a love of brothers and sisters in the truth. Let me say this. It has to be that our love is tethered in the truth, and it can't be that our love is tethered to each other. As I said before, we will let each other down. And I've met plenty of people that their love was for the people not in the truth. Their association was because we all liked the same thing and had nothing to do with the truth. And it led to some pretty disastrous things. Number one, since the love was not based in the truth, it was easy for them to affirm lies and be deceived and the whole thing goes shipwrecked. Number two, when a person falls and the friendship and the love is not tethered in the truth, guess what ends up happening? They break free from all the rest of the brothers and sisters because they said, well, this one fell, therefore I can't reconcile all the other stuff that happened. It has to be that our love is tethered in the truth, and I love you in the truth. Notice that the primary focus of our love here in this text is for one another. Now, I believe that we should show love to everyone. Oh, but there's a special bond that we have here today based upon the truth of Jesus Christ. It's a bond that is real, deep, and profound. Let's not minimize that. Let's not, let's not look down on that. That's a real thing. Truth matters. Doctrine matters. The fellowship in that truth and doctrine matters. It has to matter. And if it's not based off of that and it's based off of something else, it's not the type of biblical love that we should have for one another. It's anything other than being founded in the truth is not strong enough to keep us unified. Now, I'm going to talk briefly about verse 3. Probably next week we might deal a little bit more with verse 3. But notice what he says here. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. Paul normally says, may grace be with you. May mercy be with you. John here is reminding this lady, yeah, no, I, I, I want you to experience grace, but, but I also want you to know this. You already have received grace. And will continue to receive grace. You have already received mercy. And you will continue to receive mercy. And you have received peace. And you will continue to receive peace. 
It will be with you. Tomorrow, this next second, grace will be with you. God's grace will be with you. God's mercy will be with you. God's peace will be with you. Of course, God's grace is seen on the cross. His mercy is seen in the cross. We have peace with God because of the cross. Amen. But these blessings, notice where they come from. These blessings will be ours because they're from, notice, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. These blessings are anchored in God himself. There are some who suggest that if the, the, the woman would stay in truth and love, she would receive grace, she would receive mercy, she would receive love and peace. I believe the Lord blesses his children who are obedient. But if he's blessing me because of my obedience, it can no longer be grace. Right? The whole point of grace is that it's unmerited favor. So as a believer, I receive not only unmerited favor at the time that I place my faith in Jesus, when Jesus died on the cross, but I receive unmerited favor as a believer right now. There are things that God gives me that I don't deserve right now. I have a favor with God that I don't deserve right now. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be in his good graces. Do you know how much sinning I did this morning? I don't deserve it at all. But what does he do? He keeps me in his good favor. Tomorrow, the day after that, the day after that, the day after that always and forever. Now think about this mercy. Mercy is not receiving the things I do deserve. You know how many disciplines from the Lord I do deserve? Guess how many I don't get? A lot. Did that happen at the cross? Amen, it did. Does that happen right now? Amen, it does. Will that happen when we leave this place? Amen, it will. It will be. And then peace. I have peace with God then. I have peace with God now, and I'll have peace with God in the future. Not only do I have peace with God, I also have this unique thing of peace from God. This will be with us. As believers, we always have this grace, this mercy, and this peace, and it is with us. And it cannot be found in any other place but... God our Father and Jesus Christ. That's where it's from. Now think about this lady. She has kids. They're wandering around. False teachers around. What does she say to these young kids? You can't find grace, mercy, and peace in those things. Why? Because it only comes from God. Now how, now how do we know this? How do we know this? Notice this last phrase. In truth, and in love. It's a great phrase. We know and we receive and we continue to grow in grace and mercy and peace. And we have these things because it's revealed to us in God's truth. And he lovingly gives it to us. His blessings are based and anchored upon himself. Not upon us. What an incredible message, right? Now, I'm not the most avid boatman, as many of you know. 
Anybody that's ever been on a boat with me before knows that half of the trip is me just crying and screaming in the fetal position in the back of the boat, asking, when do we get to go back? And the other half is me in the fetal position saying, are we there yet? Please, sir, I don't want to be on your boat anymore. No, I've been on boats. I haven't done that yet. Although the next guy that does take me out, I probably will, just as a joke. Uh, But I have been on a boat before, never been in a boat where the water's been really bad, where we needed to, like, we were worried for our lives. Never been in a situation where the anchor was saving my life. I'm sure that that's been the case of some, maybe some in this room, that's been the case. You've needed that anchor, and it was really important that you had that anchor. And, and I, I don't know what it would be like to say, I really need an anchor, and drop the anchor, and go, I hope it holds. That would be really scary, by the way. I, I couldn't think of anything more treacherous than that, of going, here you go, anchor. Hope you find something on the bottom so that I don't die. But imagine you do put down an anchor, and it does hold. And you know it's holding. You can feel it holding. Storms raging on. You can see the rocks. You can hear the water lapping against the, against the shore. And you go, yeah, but the anchor's still strong. That would be an incredible feeling. That would be incredibly encouraging, incredibly comforting. You could probably think about what to do next. Oh, Friends, uh, think about the anchor that we've just heard that we have in Christ. Whoa. This, is like, this is like cemented anchor. This is like an anchor where like, it doesn't move at all. Nothing shakes this anchor. It doesn't move. It doesn't even think about moving. It's, it's sunk into bedrock. Everything's happening around. doesn't matter. I have this truth. I have Jesus, I have the gospel, I have the word. I have the love of my brothers and sisters, which is based upon that. I have all these incredible blessings, which are anchored in God himself. And no culture or anything happening in the geopolitics of the world is ever going to change the anchor and loosen that anchor. It's secure, it's firm, so I can bravely look out Because the anchor is holding, and I can say, I'm going to do what you want me to do, Lord. I don't have to worry about some of this stuff. You've got it. So as I think about the crazy world outside, false teachers everywhere, right? There's a lot of that everywhere, right? Stuff happening in Israel. People are freaking out. It's the end of the world. I hope so. I hope Jesus comes back. But we believe in the scriptures that guess what? We believe in an eminent return, which means there's no signs to determine his coming. He's going to come at any time. Number two, we also know that after the seven-year tribulation, we get to come back to earth and reign for a thousand years with Christ. So it can't be the end. People freaking out. What anchors us in the midst of that? This. I'm in this. I am moving. Things are happening in your family. It's tough stuff. Shakes your soul to its core. You're in Jesus. You have all this stuff in Jesus. It's scary. It's hard. It's difficult. It hurts. But you're anchored. You are anchored. Amen. 
My advice this week is to spend time glorying in this. Spend time thinking about this. Spend time in the word. Spend time in prayer. And when you feel yourself starting to slip going, oh, things are starting to go crazy. I don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, you got an anchor. You have a strong anchor. We have a strong anchor in Jesus Christ. This afternoon, we are going to run over a little bit. That's a joke because we're already over quite a bit. Um, We're going to have an opportunity to celebrate and think about this strong anchor of grace and mercy and peace that is ours. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper today.